Father, we come to praise you because you're so beautiful. We magnify you and exalt you, Father, because you're so kind. You don't have to be so kind, but you are. Father, we thank you for the grace that you give us each and every morning. Thank you, Father God. Thank you, Father God, for the promise that you would never leave us nor forsake us. That you will be with us until the end of the world. Father, someone is going through something here today. And maybe they feel like you have forsaken them. Even though they've put their faith and trust in your son Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that you will remind them this morning that you will never forsake us. That you will never leave us. That you love us, Father. Thank you for Calvary's cross, which reminds us of that, Lord. Take us deeper into that. Pray, Lord, that you would speak this morning, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Give us you, Lord. Give us you, Father God. Draw us closer to you, Lord. Break us, Lord, but but remake us, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. August the 28th, 1963, 250,000 people gathered around the Lincoln Memorial in order to hear the late great Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. And that speech has impacted this world in so many different ways, mainly because Dr. King was able to paint a mental picture of what could and should be in terms of racial reconciliation. That dream has gone on to inspire millions, if not billions of people since then. But you know, if it had not been for a man by the name of A.D. Williams, Dr. Martin Luther King probably would not have made that speech. A.D. Williams was the grandfather of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And he was a civil rights activist before the civil rights movement. In fact, he is most famous for bringing the NAACP to Atlanta. A.D. Williams, before Martin Luther King Jr. had a dream of racial reconciliation and a dream of equal rights in this country. He had a mental picture of what could be and what should be. And it is because God gave A.D. Williams the grace to not give up on that God-given vision that we as this country can eat from the fruits of the civil rights progress. Whenever God gives a vision, a mental picture of what could be and what should be, Satan is going to do everything he can to discourage that vision 
and wreck confusion. Whenever God sets out a plan in your life to move forward for his glory and his son's sake, Satan is coming. What do we do when God has given us a vision of what life could be and should be and we face discouragement? Let's go to Nehemiah chapter 4. In Nehemiah chapter 4, we see Nehemiah having a God-given vision. And we see Satan tempting and discouraging Nehemiah to give up. And we learn two valuable lessons from the life of Nehemiah that will encourage us today to not give up. Nehemiah chapter 4, I'm going to read verse 1 through 15. And then verse 20, if you can stand to the reading of God's word. In Nehemiah chapter 8, we see Israel standing up when the word of God was read out of deep reverence and respect for it. And that's why we do it here. Amen. What you hold in your hand is not a self-help book. It is the very words of God. Let us read and enjoy it together. Starting at verse 1. Now, when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. And he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Anamite was beside him, and he said, yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads. And give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall and all the wall was joined together to half its height. For the people had a mind to work. But when Sambalat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashadites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and to fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night and In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is falling. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we would not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. And at that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall and open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears and their bows. And I looked and rose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. 
Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Verse 20, in the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. You may be seated in the name of Jesus. So what do you do when you have a God-given vision? A vision is a mental picture of what could be and what should be. And Satan comes to discourage you from reaching towards that vision. Today's story, we read about a man by the name of Nehemiah. And as we're reading about Nehemiah and we're coming to an end of this portion of our vision series, for preparing to jump back in Corinthians soon, we want to know that God has laid a vision for what could be at Forest Baptist and what should be. And we want to know that, that Satan is going to do everything he can in your life and in my life to discourage what God has laid out for us. But we also want to know that God has given each of us as Christians a, a picture in our own personal lives of, of what could be and what should be. And Satan every day is sending dem demons and, and seeking to destroy and to distract you from reaching your God-ordained and God-given potential. Nehemiah had a, a burden for his people. He had a burden for Jerusalem, the Bible says, as he heard that Jerusalem was still in ruins. Nehemiah, along with other captives, uh, about 70 years before, were taken into captivity by the Babylonians and then by the Persians. And we learned that they came in and they ransacked Jerusalem and they took the brightest and the best back to the homeland. And and God allowed this time to be a time of chiseling for his people, a time for them to seek his face and to turn from their wicked ways and to trust him. And the Bible says that Nehemiah was a cupbearer. A cupbearer was a very important position. It would have been equivalent to the secretary of state for the United States president. He was constantly in the president, in the king's presence, he was charged with taking care of the king and, and being his right-hand man. And he even was blessed at that to be honored with tasting the king's food before the king tasted it in order to make sure that nothing poisonous was in it. But the Bible says that in chapter 1, when Nehemiah heard about the state of Jerusalem, that the walls were torn down, that he sought the face of the Lord, that God gave him a deep burden, and then God gave him a vision of how Jerusalem could be rebuilt. And how do, how do we know if the vision that we have is a God-given vision? Number one, it lines up with God's revealed word. It lines up with God's revealed word. When I'm talking about God having, uh, there being a vision in your life, that vision, that mental picture of what should be and could be should line up with God's word. What do I mean when I say line up with God's word? It means that it doesn't contradict biblical principles. And it's in tune with the heart of God. 
Nehemiah's vision was in tune with the heart of God because it had been prophesied that God would restore his people and bring them back to Jerusalem. But second, we know it's a God-given vision because God opens up the necessary doors for the vision to happen. Nehemiah had a God-given vision and he had a burden and God opened up the heart of the king of Persia. And he gave the king a heart for Nehemiah. The Bible says that the king's heart was favorable towards Nehemiah and he began to sign decrees and sign letters and and give Nehemiah the resources that he need to build Jerusalem's walls. So if we say that God gave us a vision and it doesn't line up with God's word and if we are fighting to make it happen rather than God opening up doors, it's probably not a God-given vision or it's, it's not time. We don't have to make stuff happen. God makes it happen as we seek his face. But we have to know that whenever you have a vision, Satan is coming to attack. Whenever you have a mental picture of what could be and what should be, the devil is going to do everything he can to discourage it from happening. He is going to try to break you down so that you don't pursue the will of God. And the primary way that he does that is through words. The primary way that Satan discourages you from fulfilling the vision that God has given you is through words. It's through speech. It can be the discouragement of another person who sees what who doesn't see what you see that could be a genuine christian but but you have a vision for what god has called you to do and they discourage you from doing it it can be the words of a non-christian but here's the catch it can be your own words it can be your own insecurities and lack of faith that satan uses against you I don't know how it works, but Satan has a way of discouraging us, doesn't he? Sometimes we don't need other people to discourage us. We can discourage ourselves by speaking negativity and lack of faith to ourselves, by by telling ourselves, even though we know God has told us to do something, that we can't do it. Satan has a way of getting into our consciousness and somehow within a spiritual realm, discouraging us. And we see that in today's text, that the Nehemiah had a vision and that Satan sought to discourage him by breaking him down with words. And he sought to discourage him through a man by the name of Sabalat. Look at verse 1, 1 through 4. Now when Sabalat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, And he jeered at the Jews. In other words, he taunted them and teased them. And he said, in the presence of his brothers and the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and the burned ones at that? 
Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and said, yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he, he will break down their stone wall. So we see that Nehemiah has this vision and a man by, na- by the name of Sanballat begins to discourage him. And the Bible says that Sanballat, look at verse 1, he was greatly angry and he was greatly enraged. Whenever we are on mission for Jesus, Satan is going to be greatly angered and greatly enraged. If you are not on mission for Jesus, Satan doesn't have beef with you. Now, he's still going to try to tear you down and bring you down lower, but he's not greatly enraged. Satan is greatly enraged when you set your affections on Jesus. Why was Sanballat so enraged? Sanballat was a Hornite. Um, He was not uh, 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 a regular uh, citizen. He was a governor of of a specific region. And the Bible teaches us that part of his reason of governing was to govern Jerusalem. So when the Jews fell and they tumbled over the walls, that now became a part of his territory. So when Nehemiah had a vision from the Lord to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, it was a direct, uh, it was in direct conflict with what Sanballat wanted because Sanballat was about to lose control. He was about to lose control of Jerusalem. See, the Jews, that was their home. That was the land that the Lord had given them. They built up a big wall in order to protect themselves from foreign attack. And since the wall was compromised and the wall was down, they could not be able to stop people from coming in and taking advantage of them. But Sanballat did not want that wall to go up because he knew that if that wall went up, he would lose control. Satan is upset and he's mad at you because he doesn't want to lose control of you. He wants to keep you under his grips. He wants you to be gifted but confused. Satan is a control freak. And how is God giving visions attacked? God giving visions is attacked through words because God giving visions are easy to criticize. Don't miss it. A God-given vision is easy to criticize. Why? Because a God-given vision is God-sized. Hello, lights. When God gives a vision, it's too big for you and me to do in human strength. And we won't know the answers to exactly how it's going to work. And Satan sees that the vision is is supernatural and he reminds us that we're not able to do it in our own strength. And what he wants us to do, rather than look to Jesus and to look to God and to follow his mercy and to, to find strength in him, he wants us to begin to look at ourselves and to agree with him and say, you know, you're right. I'm not I'm not smart enough. I'm not good enough. I've never done that before. We've never done that before. So he seeks to discourage us. God-given visions are easy to criticize. God doesn't give you a vision for your life that you can figure out on your own. Why? Because the Christian walk is a faith walk. If you can figure out everything that's going on in your life and how everything is going to work out, you're not walking by faith. 
Hebrews 11 says that we walk by faith and not by sight. That's supernatural. That's supernatural. So we see in this text that Sambalit, he sees this God-given vision and he begins to criticize. And how does he criticize? He criticizes by pointing out the gaps of the vision. He points out the gaps. He points out the things that Nehemiah hasn't yet to figure out. Look at what he says. He taunts them. He says, what are these feeble Jews doing? And here's the danger about this. Here's what's interesting about this. Everything that he says is either half true or all the way true. So Satan isn't just going to lie, but what he's going to do is he's going to emphasize the parts that have truth to it in order to get you discouraged. This is true. The Jews were feeble. They were a broken, misplaced people. So he points that out. Will they restore it for themselves? Another translation says, will they restore it in order to worship? Taunting them. Will they sacrifice? Will they worship? Will they finish up in a day? So look how hard they work. Do they think they're about to finish this wall in a day? Will they revive the stones of heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? So look, Nehemiah, they didn't have new bricks. They were using old bricks. And he's pointing that out. He's like, are you guys going to restore this wall with rubbish and old bricks? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and look at what his friend, he says, yeah, if a fox goes up that wall, it's going to fall down. They are having a good time pointing out the weaknesses of God people. And the reason why, what they missed was, what they missed was, was that God is in the business of using feeble people to do great things. God is in the, God is, God uses rubbish things. He uses the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. God says, my grace is sufficient. He said, it is in your weakness that I am glorified. But Satan wants to declare psychological warfare on you. He wants to point out every gap in your life in order to discourage you. His goal, verse 8 says, was simple. It was to confuse the Jews. Satan is the author of confusion. Where there is confusion, Satan is present. There probably is a man here today who has a vision to be faithful to his wife. You made that commitment when you said your vows. And maybe every day that you go into work, Satan is trying to distort that vision and discourage that vision. Maybe he sends other male co-workers to you who are constantly trying to show you filth or, or trying to encourage you by saying, did you know sisters, uh, what's her name? She looks at you in a special way, man. And maybe they're boasting to you about uh, how they have a, a work spouse and their spouse and and constantly remind you that this is the 21st century. Things aren't what they used to be. Satan is trying to discourage the God-given vision for you. And there's some singles here today who God has given you a vision to, to marry a Jesus-loving individual. And you're holding on to that vision as best as you can. Know that Satan is going to try to wear you down and discourage you. He is going to try to send people your way who have a secular perspective of dating and singleness. 
He is going to try to discourage you to lower your standards. They are going to come to you and say stuff like your standards are too high. Instead of settling, instead of going for a Jesus loving individual, just go for someone who's a good person. Go to someone who just believes in God. That's what Satan wants to do. He wants to discourage you with words that they come to you, say things are different today. It's a Christian teenager here who God has given you a vision to to give and to keep your body for him and him alone. But Satan wants to discourage you with words. And he's got that little knucklehead boy or girl coming up to you, trying to convince you to give your body away to them, saying that, baby, or, or man, if, if you love me, you would do this with me because everybody does it nowadays. But you know that God has given you a vision of what ought to be and what could be. Satan wants to discourage you. There may be some Christian parents here today who you have a vision to raise your children up in a a God-fearing way and and, and to read the word with them and to bring them to church. But it seems like every time you make up your mind to come to Sunday morning, every time you make up your mind to come to Wednesday evening, all heck breaks out. And it's hard for you just to to make it happen. Satan begins to discourage you and, and tell you, you know, it doesn't take all that. Or maybe a family member says you take things too serious and you're trying to to teach them the Bible, but you need to let them find their own way because, after all, it doesn't work like that today. Maybe there's a Christian couple, you made up your mind to get out of debt. Went to Dave Ramsey's seminar. You were convicted that having maxed out credit cards and And being so behind in your debt was not a godly thing. And you made up your mind to to get out of debt and to make some sacrifices. And all of a sudden, that family member comes and says, everybody has debt. You can't live nowadays without debt. You might as well just charge it and worry about it later. Because life is short. Amen. Whenever God gives you a God-given vision, a vision to be a a man of God, a vision to read your word daily, a vision to, to pray, a vision to go on a Daniel fast, Satan is coming. He's coming. The Bible says he is lurking, seeking whom he can devour. So what do you do when Satan talks smack to you? What do you do when Satan causes confusion? What what, what do you do when you're at the end of your ropes and you you, you know that that it's possible, but you're just not sure if it's possible for you to, to glorify God with your life? What do you do when psychological warfare has begun to attack you? What do you do when you can't get out the bed in the morning with joy? What do you do when guilt and condemnation begins to overtake you and you you genuinely want to do it right, but but evil is ever beside you? What do you do? Verse 4, Nehemiah shows us. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captive. Do not cover their guilt. 
And let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. You pray. When Satan declares psychological warfare on you, when he's trying to get in your mind and discourage you with the words of others or your own insecurities, you pray. You pray. Coretta Scott King, in her book, Standing in the Need of Prayer, says that prayer was the soul of the civil rights movement in the midst of discouragement. She goes on to say, I remember one very difficult day when he came home. Speaking of Martin, he was bone weary from the stress that came with his leadership of the Montgomery Boycott. In the middle of the night, he was awakened by a threatening and abusive phone call. One of many we received throughout the movement. On this particular occasion, however, Martin had had enough. After the call, he got up from bed and he made himself some coffee. He began to worry about his family and all of the burdens that come with our movement weighed heavily on his soul. With his head in his hands, Martin bowed over the kitchen table and prayed aloud to God, Lord, I am taking a stand for what I believe is right. The people are looking to me for leadership, and if I stand before them without strength and courage, they will falter. I am at the end of my powers. I have nothing left. I have nothing left. I have come to the point where I can't face it alone. Later, he told me, at that moment, I experienced the presence of the divine as I had never experienced him before. It seemed as though I could hear a voice saying, stand up for righteousness. Stand up for truth, and God will be by your side forever. And when Martin stood up from the table, he was in bed with a new sense of confidence, and he was ready to face anything. And in Martin Luther King's own words, he says, that is when, more than ever, God became real to him. He then went on, strengthened like never before, to to lead the civil rights movement with vigor because God had given him a mental picture of what ought to be and what could be. Satan is seeking to devour you. He's seeking to discourage you. He's seeking to bring you down. And I'm telling you that the answer is to pray. Nehemiah's prayer life was off the chain. Ten times in the book of Nehemiah, we see him praying passionate prayers. He opens up the book in chapter one, uh, verse number four. He opens up the book by passionately praying about the burden that God had put on his heart. In in chapter 9, we have the longest prayer in the Bible prayed by Nehemiah. Nehemiah, when Satan taunted him, when Satan discouraged him, he did not think of prayer as a spare tire. He thought of it as his steering wheel. He ran to prayer as a necessity, not as a luxury. And I'm telling you, when Satan is running up and down your spine, you need to clear the room. Put the babies in their room, turn off your phone, and have a little talk with Jesus. We see that Nehemiah here, he prays a very hard prayer. He prays that God would send vengeance and justice on his enemies. He prays that they would not find forgiveness 
And then at the end of it, he prays this prayer and he says, uh, for they have provoked you. So he had a, a righteous anger towards these people because they were intentionally trying to derail the mission of God. Should we pray that way? Should we pray that our enemies would not be forgiven? Should we pray that God would hurt them? I, I, I would encourage you not to pray that way. Nehemiah, some say he had a, a whole, this was a holy prayer, this was a, a righteous prayer. Others say that this just teaches us that in our time of need, we can just be real with God. And I believe to some degree both are, are being held here. But I believe what the Bible teaches us, according to Matthew chapter 43 and 44, when the enemy comes through people to distract us and to discourage us, that we ought to pray for their good and not for their evil. The Bible says, bless those who, what? Come on, say it like you know your Bible. <laughs> say it like you believe it. Bless those who persecute you. Pray for those, right? Who, who are constantly perfect, persecuted. And he's not talking about prayer, a prayer that God would eliminate him. He's saying pray that God would bless them. What does it mean to be blessed? According to the Sermon on the Mount, it means to really know God. Pray that God would allow them to be happy in him. And it's hard, but we must pray. We can pray that prayer not only because Jesus taught it, but because Jesus modeled it. That's what I love about Jesus. Jesus doesn't tell us to do something and then not do it. Jesus tells us and then he modeled it. Because there was a time when Jesus was being persecuted. And he prayed a prayer, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Now what's amazing about that prayer is not just what he prayed, but it's when he prayed it. Y'all don't hear me. It's not just what he prayed, but it's when he prayed it. See, Jesus did not wait till Resurrection Sunday to pray that prayer. He didn't wait till Easter Sunday and say, look at my arms. Now, now, Lord, I pray for those who. No, no. He prayed that prayer while there was nails in his palms and in his feet. And he can give us the power to do the same. But I can tell you what, you, what we need to be upset at. What we can pray violently against is unbelief. Not the other person, but unbelief in our own hearts. We should pray like Nehemiah prayed, not for our enemies, but for our own unbelief. We should say, Father, I believe, help my unbelief. Father, crucify my unbelief. Father, take my unbelief and dash it against the stone. Father, help me to see you for who you are and what you can do. We've got to pray. When you pray... Satan gives you a peace of mind. When you pray, Satan, God, Satan tries to steal a peace of mind, but when you pray, God gives you a peace of mind. Satan tries to steal your confidence, but when you pray, God gives you confidence. Satan is trying to steal the spirit of perseverance, but, but God, when you pray, he will give you the spirit of perseverance. When you pray, God, heaven intervenes on your behalf and begins to work. There's an old hymn that says, what a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to him in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Nehemiah prayed 
And sometimes it seems like prayer is not doing anything and and prayer is not an action. I'm telling you, the greatest action you can take every morning when you get up is to pray. Because when you pray, you say, Lord, I trust you with today. When you pray, you say, Lord, I trust you with my emotions and the way I feel. You say, Lord, 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 Lord. When you pray, you say, Lord, I believe that you are able to do exceedingly above and beyond anything. But when we don't pray, we say, Lord, I can do this myself. When we don't pray, we say all things are just going to happen in due season. And not because of trust in God, but just because of trust of the way things work themselves out. Prayer is humbling ourselves before God, admitting, God, that I am a child and you are the father and I depend on you for everything. It's worship. Satan's talking smack, telling you everything that you're not and what you can never be. You pray. Pick up the phone. Call on Jesus. Be real with him. But do it knowing that he's able. We see in verse six, it says, so we built the wall and the wall was joined together to half its height for the people had a mind to work. Why do we pray? Because when we pray, God gives us the strength to work in the midst of all of this confusion, in the midst of Satan's discouragement, in the midst of these taunts, in the midst of the governor trying to break Nehemiah down from the God given vision, the vision still came about. You say, yeah, but but it was only built to half its height. Yeah, well, they didn't have a quarter of the people who built it in the first place. God can do exceedingly above and beyond. And when you pray, you release him to do his thing in your life. In your life. Verse 7, but when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashadites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forth and that the breaches were being beginning to close, they were very angry. They see the success, they see what's happening, and they get very angry. And they all plotted together to come and to fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And what did they do? Verse 9. <laughs> And they prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. Now, notice what they didn't do. Nowhere in this story does it say that Nehemiah took time and stopped working to try to clear up the confusion. Nowhere does it say that Nehemiah took things in his own hands. And tried to fight Sambalat in his own strength. <laughs> he said, no, I'm going to let my father handle this one. Never forget when I was younger, vaguely remember, but I, I was probably in, in kindergarten or first grade and it was a, 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 a child picking on me. And at the same time, I was going to school uh, for that season with my cousins and the child was bigger than me. So all I kept thinking the whole time is I got to run and get my cousins and my sister, and everything's going to be all right. <laughs> and that's what you got to do. You, you can't, you don't, don't fight the fight yourself in your own strength. You're not big enough and strong enough. Satan is tricky. You fight it on God's terms. Don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but spiritual wickedness in high places. It's a spiritual battle, and you got to battle it with spiritual tools. You can't battle it by trying to talk back in the midst of an argument. 
You got to battle it by, on your knees by praying. And that's what we see Nehemiah doing. And he said, and we prayed and our God set a guard as protection against them day and night. When we pray, God unleashes protection for us. And we may not see it and we may not feel it, but he's faithful to protect us. So Nehemiah prayed. We ought to pray. Second, we ought to take heart and keep moving forward. Take heart and keep moving forward. Verse 10, in Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble by ourselves. We will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. And at that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us 10 times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears and their bows. And I looked and arose and they said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives and your homes. So second, we see that we ought to take heart and keep moving forward in the midst of discouragement. As Satan is trying to declare all our war on you, psychologically trying to break you down, trying to get you to give up, you have to take heart and keep moving forward. This is amazing because Sambalat, Tobiah, Jesus, the rest of these people, they, they increased. They went from just talking to now seeking to get physical and to fight. And not only did they go from talking to get physical and fight, but then they, they moved on even further and they got other surrounding people involved in order to distract. Verse 10, and the strength of those who bear the burdens is falling. So Judah is now talking. Their neighbors are saying there is too much rubble. By ourselves, we would not be able to rebuild the wall. So those who were not walking on the, working on the wall begins to talk to Nehemiah. And they say, listen, I see what you're doing, but we're discouraged. Give up. Verse 11 says, and our enemies said they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop their work. So now they're saying not only are the people who are with Nehemiah turning their back and trying to discourage them. But here we see that his enemies have made up a mind just to kill him. Get rid of him. Look at how much Satan hates the work of God. Look at how much Hayden hates seeing God formed in you. Look at how much he wants to distract you from being who God has called you to be. He goes on. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. It is in times of discouragement that we become afraid. We become scared. And fear leads us to sin. It does. When we're afraid, that's when we don't look to Jesus. But Nehemiah says, take heart, take heart, don't be afraid. And look at what he says. He tells them to remember. First thing he says, remember the Lord. 
Remember the Lord. In the midst of the confusion, in the midst of discouragement, you have to remember the Lord. Now, what about the Lord do you need to remember? In Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 4 through 5, he says that we ought to remember that the Lord is great and awesome. We see him here saying the same thing, who is great and awesome. But in Nehemiah chapter 1, he explains why the Lord is great and awesome. He says because of his steadfast love and covenant keeping. We can have faith rather than walk in fear when Satan's trying to discourage us. Because the Lord is faithful and he's in covenant with us. What does it mean to be in covenant? It means that he has committed to being for you. When Satan is trying to discourage you and telling you you can't be that person and you can't do the, what God has called you to be, you, can, you just remember that the Lord is faithful and he will give you the strength. He won't leave you. He won't forsake you. He won't allow you to be by yourself. You're not by yourself as you struggle. As you struggle in your marriage and you have a vision for a marriage that's going to glorify God, you keep praying and you, you take heart and you move forward because you're not alone. God is with you. God is with you. The second thing he says is not only should you remember the Lord who is great and awesome, but he says that you ought to remember what you're fighting for. Remember what you're fighting for. Nehemiah, in the midst of discouragement, his own people are discouraging. His, the, uh, the, his enemies are discouraging. There's confusion. People are running to him saying that they're coming. They're about to fight us. They're about to kill us. Nehemiah says, nope. Remember what you're fighting for. He said, get your weapons in one hand and stay on mission. Because what you're fighting for is your family. You're fighting for your family. You're fighting for your future. You're fighting for your future. And we have to remember that we're fighting for our future. We have to remember what is at stake. Satan wants to discourage you, but you must fight. Satan wants to tell you to give up, but you must move forward. Where's the fight? Don't, Don't let him punk you. Where's your fight? Don't be afraid. You've got God on your side. Where, where's your fight? This is the God of Israel. This is the God of Israel. This is the God who defeated a, 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 a people at Jericho by having his people just walk around the wall seven times. This is that God. This isn't a different God. He's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. But you have to recognize that you're in a fight. You have to recognize that you're in the midst of spiritual warfare. You, we are not at a time of peace. Every morning, Father, when you get up out of the bed, it's a time of war. Not against your family, not against your co-workers, not against your friends, but against Satan. Satan has declared all-out war against you. He wants you. She said, Peter, come here. Got something to tell you. Satan has asked for you. Come again? Satan has asked for you. What would you say? He has asked for you. He wants to sift you as weak. In other words, he wants to take you out of here. But what did Jesus say? But I pray for you. You can take courage and remember the Lord because he's praying for you. Not only are you praying to him, but Jesus is praying for you. 
And if Jesus is praying for you, what are you worried about? You've got the most competent prayer partner in the world. You've got to remember this is war. John Piper said life is war. That's not all it is, but it is always that. But most people do not believe this in their hearts. Most people show by their priorities and their casual approach to spiritual things that they believe we are in peacetime, not wartime. Very few people think that we are in war that is greater than World War II or than an imaginable nuclear war. Few reckon that Satan is much worse enemy than our earthly foe or realize that the conflict is not restricted to any one global theater but is in every town and city in the world. Who considers that the casualties of this war do not merely lose an arm or an eye or earthly life but lose everything, even their own souls, and enter a hell of everlasting torment? Until we feel the force of this, we will not pray as we are. We're at war. You say, well, it's hard living for Christ. It's hard raising my children for God. It's hard sometimes coming to church. It's hard reading my Bible. Everything is, seems like it's against me. And I'm telling you, it's because you're at war. But God has given you everything you need in Christ to be victorious. And you've got to believe that deep in your soul. You've got to believe when you pray, you're praying to a real God who can help you. Remember that God will fight for you. Remember that God will fight for you. That's our last point. As Nehemiah is getting everyone together to fight, he says something interesting after telling them, fight for your children, fight for your, your brothers, fight for your sisters. He says, no, God is going to fight for you. Verse 20, in a place where you hear the sword of the trumpet rally to us there, our God will fight for us. So while you are fighting, while you are working out your, your salvation in fear and trembling, God is working in you. And he's fighting for you. Bigger than the big brother. Bigger than the big cousin. He's the God of this universe that holds thousands and thousands of galaxies in his hand, that knows the number of, of, of hairs on the head of every single individual. He is fighting for you. So I want to encourage you, don't give up. Don't lose heart. Don't quit on the mission that God has given you. To that man who's at work and who's constantly being tempted to be unfaithful, I'm calling you to dig in, to pray, to take heart, and to fight for the family that God has given you. To that single person who says it seems like everyone who's available is living in the world, I'm calling you to pray, to take heart, to dig in, to believe that God is able and he will fight your battle for you. To that Christian couple that's in debt, and it seems like every time you make a move to get out of debt, Satan comes with something that you didn't expect to keep you in debt. I'm telling you to look to Jesus, to pray, and to fight, and to keep moving forward. Luke 18, 1, Jesus told a parable, and the Bible says, and he told them a parable to the effect that you ought always to pray and not to lose heart. Galatians 6 and 9 says, let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we 
faint not. That's all I come to tell you today is don't faint. Don't give up. Don't allow Satan to discourage you. In the midst of confusion, in the midst of brokenness, continue to trust in Jesus. He says, if you faint not. Some of you have given up and you were so close to where God wanted you to be. And I want you today to pick up your sword, to get back on the wall and to say, Lord, forgive me for fainting, but I've made up my mind not to faint. Lord, I believe that I can go on if you faint not. Some of you have thrown in a towel and said, God is blessing everyone else, but he doesn't bless me. He doesn't love me. Well, today we learn that we ought to remember the Lord. Remember that his steadfast love, that means his unchanging, unmovable love. And we ought to stand in that love, believe that love, and embrace that love and move forward. Get up. Get up. Stop letting Satan walk up one side of you and down the other side. Get up. Fight for what's right. Fight for what God has prepared for you. Believe it. Jesus did it for you. The Bible says that he was facing an enemy in Gethsemane. And there was spiritual warfare going on there. And your Savior wanted to give up. But the Bible says that he prayed. And his prayer was, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. And the Bible says that he went to Calvary's cross for you in order that you would have salvation. And it looked like it was over and it looked like he should just quit as he was buried in a tomb. But the Bible says on the third day, he rose again with all power in his hand. That same power that rose Jesus from the grave is the same power that can give you victory. So get up and fight. The Bible says that the church belongs to the Lord. And the gates of hell will not prevail against her. Any church that is seeking to to fulfill the Great Commission, any church that's seeking to save the lost and, 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 and to grow in godliness, the Bible says that Satan's going to come up against her, but he will not prevail. And we must believe that in our hearts. We must believe that in our hearts. We serve a resurrected Savior who is able. What is it that you've given up on? What's your Lazarus? What have you declared as dead? All it takes is for you to call on Jesus. And he can bring it back to life. What is it? Don't let Satan. Don't let Satan discourage you. The Bible says that one day we'll see Satan and everyone will say, is this the one who deceived the nations? Say he's not this big, ugly, strong-looking animal. It's probably something pruny, <laughs> puny, and weak. Is, is this him? Is this the one who had me give up on my ministry? Is this the one who had me give up on my marriage? Is this the one who had me give up on a vision to raise my children the right way? Is this the one who had me give up? Amen. Father, we thank you for your goodness. Help us, Lord, to trust in you, to pray. Help us, Father God, to believe that when you give a vision, a picture of what should be and and what could be, Lord, that we will take heart and that we will fight. Help us, Lord, to fight, not with the carnal weapons, not with taunting and, and talking back and not with trying to be evil and pay evil with evil, 
but by looking to you, trusting in you. Help us, Father God, to look past our insecurities and to look to Jesus. Amen.